Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we covered the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C., where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine. Fincantieri Marinette Marine, as you all know, sponsors our naval coverage. Later in this program, we're going to talk about how electric propulsion can make the U.S. Navy more efficient and effective. But first, we caught up with Dave Alexander, the president of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, to discuss the company's maritime surveillance, anti-submarine and airborne early warning variants of the company's MQ-9B aircraft that has been dubbed the Sea Guardian. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and our Andy Marshall series of interviews with leading strategists. Here's our conversation with Dave Alexander. Dave, honor and pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you, Vargo, and it's a pleasure to see you in person finally after COVID. So uh, you've been a great friend of the company and we're glad to be here with you. Uh, absolute pleasure. Great to see you uh, as well. Um, so, want to uh, start off with, um, you know, obviously we're in a great power competition mindset. Uh, there's a transition uh, that the company is also making, right? The, the Reaper and Predator lines were very popular in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, everybody is looking at how to get, uh, you know, where you get to the future. You guys obviously have had some employment challenges as, as, as you've had a drawdown in the, in the wake of that, but are working to look at Okay, so what about that legacy capability is able to be applicable to future challenges, both technologically as well as on the airframe uh, side of things. Uh, you and I were at the uh, Dubai Air Show in 2019, one of the last international events uh, before all this got started, and you guys were displaying a Predator aircraft with sonar buoy dispensers uh, on it. As sometimes is the case, uh, you couldn't talk about it at the time. It was one of those instances we regularly have at trade shows where a model makes it out and yet you can't talk about it, but now you can. Talk to us about what the concept of operations is that you're talking to the Navy about because you guys are actually going to move forward to testing on this program. So as we transition from, um, you know, basically war on terror into new environments, which would be maritime patrol, uh, we're focusing on uh, new missions, we're focusing on new sensors, um, and we're focusing on automation. So a lot of autonomy and a lot of AI on the edge to pull uh, man out of the loop and make things more efficient. Um, now, to bring forward some of these systems, what we are moving into is uh, leasing programs so that customers can try before they buy. And we just, this month in August, we're gonna transition one of our leasing programs with the Marine Corps from a company-owned, company-operated to a government-owned, government-operated program. So it's a successful uh, try-before-you-buy program. And then that will eventually transition into uh, brand new missions uh, for the company. And basically, like you were saying before, take a really, really awesome airplane, the MQ-9, high reliability, high availability, uh, just pour gas in it and it flies and marry it with new sensors and new capability. 
And, and talk to us about the ASW mission, right? Because I think uh, when you listen to guys like Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute, he's been talking about uh, teaming, man-on-man teaming in order to be able to get the kind of uh, anti-submarine patrol ranges. And that is a very innovative solution to put sonar buoys on the aircraft, have it be a communications node, but also it have a degree of autonomy in how it performs its mission as well, as you said. Talk to us about that concept and what it means for a future uh, man-on-man anti-submarine, you know, new program effectively, where it would support P-8s, for example, as well as surface ships uh, that are out there in the force. So quite a few years now, we've been working on, um, so this maritime patrol aircraft, which includes ASW, so it will uh, can uh, control and process sonar buoy signals. It can launch sonar buoys. Um, Additionally, it has a surface search radar to the horizon. It has Comet DF, it has ESM, and ELINT on this aircraft. So it's a very, very capable machine um, that we're taking forward. Now to prove out these new technologies, this year we did Integrated Battle Problem 21 and we proved out the ASW mission, launching sonar buoys, tracking, and then doing the man-unman teaming with Link 16 into P-8s and down to the surface uh, ships as well. And uh, that allowed us to keep eyes on the uh, targets over the, over, the, over the area of interest while P-8s left and came back several times and you know we could keep custody of what was going on. So it was a very, very successful demo. And out of that, we've been invited back to Valiant Shield 22 to perform some of the same using these, you know, very all the way to the horizon sensors with SIGINT, ESW, you know, ELANT, those, those sorts of things. Um, additionally, later this year, we're doing a European maritime demo and a joint warrior demo, and we will further demonstrate the anti-submarine warfare. This maritime patrol aircraft is, is based off what we call an enhanced MQ-9B. Okay, it's a bigger MQ-9. It's it's, it's, it's a grown-up MQ-9. It has more useful load. It has bigger, 40% bigger wings. It has uh, uh, useful load that's you know up to the 6,000-pound capacity. It's a very capable aircraft. It was designed and certified to stand Ag 4671. And <clears throat> full weather, it's got lightning protection, de-ice, and uh, fully certified for integrating into the airspace. This bigger airframe allows us to have what we call detect and avoid, very critical for flights over international airspace out over blue water. So we can we can have a forward-looking radar fused up with a ADSB and TCAS, and all those come together to a conflict avoidance screen down for the pilot on the ground to be safe. So where you don't have ATC and you don't have radar keeping airplanes separated from each other, we can take care of that with this system. And, uh, you know, you, you uh, on, on this aircraft, and guys, I'm sure, are going to go to your website and, and, and check out what it looks like, but you guys have four sonar buoy uh, pods that are you're, you're putting on the airplane. Um, talk to us a little bit about the, the range, speed, persistence, and, and how many sonar buoys you guys can carry. Well, depending on how much range and speed you want, because you do offload fuel if you just keep loading it up, but we can load it up to four pods, which would be uh, 40 sauna buoys or 80 of the smaller size sauna buoys. Um, and uh, I think at the max loaded condition, you know, we're down to maybe 15, 16 hours. And, and, and you know, one concept that we're working is 
you could have two MQ-9B Sea Guardians that are actually, one's performing the uh, ISR piece, receiving the sauna buoys, while the other one is a truck, uh, you know, loading sauna buoys into the ocean. So, so that's another another concept of use. But probably the optimum loadout is is a complete suite of sensors with two uh, sauna buoy launchers, and then those those uh, twenty sauna buoys would maybe augment the P8, you know, as they laid down their patterns. So, you know, if you, if the submarine took a path, you know, away from the sauna buoys, you could lay a few more. And you, again, this is man-on-man teaming. Uh, coming together, making the P-8 more effective. You don't have to fly the wings off the P-8, and now you've got outriggers to, you know, stay on station. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the question of what the architecture would look like as well, right? So if, for example, the Navy wanted to press ahead with this, w- w- what are, you know, is it a is it a 50-year plane program? Is it a 100-year plane program in terms of being able to give that sort of wider area coverage? I know this is a very subjective question, but as you sort of look at the business case for this and you look out for, okay, so what's what's the market? How many airplanes would the Navy need in order to be able to do this? Because you could see this as being valuable in a choke point uh, scenario. You could look at this as open area. Obviously, you'd have to be in, in proximity to a land base somewhere because you guys do operate from land bases. But what, what's sort of the, the vision you have for this because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are going to be t- trying to do the math on this and say, hey, wait a minute. So, you know, how many airplanes would I need in order to be able to do it? Yeah. Well, h- highly dependent on where you want to go. So so currently today we're doing a maritime patrol on a lease program with India. So we're actually flying out of India, two aircraft. And some of their missions are actually 2,000 nautical miles away. They stay on station and come all the way back. So, um, you know, so it just depends on how far you want to go and how long you want to stay. But I would say on the most part, um, you know, I would say a small fleet of, you know, under 20 aircraft would suffice a very, very large area and have multiple patrols that you could, um, you know, cover with that type of system. Um, and, and let me ask you, right, we, we heard from the Vice Chairman and the Joint Chiefs of Staff about the importance of having to think really differently, to, you know, this, but folks have this tendency that there's no role for legacy and that it's a legacy versus new. It's actually blending the legacy with, with the new. Uh, and I know that there are a lot of people who are listening to this and say, well, of course Dave Alexander would say that. He's built a lot of legacy airplanes that he wants to use again. But what what are what are some different ways of thinking of the problem? Because you guys, as a company, have a tendency of of trying to look differently at some of these problems for solutions. What's what's a way to look at the blend of the new and the old in order to give you actually a different kind of capability? Some folks would say that right, like putting sonar buoys on something like this is not something that a lot of people would have thought of. But then you look at it and you go, Hey, wait a minute, that opens up different avenues for me. Yeah, you know, the key to everything we're doing is long endurance, persistent. And, and affordability. So that's that's the key of which, you know, we attack all problems. And, um, you know, a big part of this, when you are flying with heavily congested area, and maybe in littorals or whatever, there's just thousands of uh, tracks that you would have to look at in a maritime patrol. So what the other thing that we're doing is, is uh, combining uh, a new acquisition, CCRI, that um, has a common operating picture, and we combine that with multi-aircraft control, such that once you get out of the airspace and get into your area of operation, you can get into a more efficient 
uh, mode of where the aircraft is more, it's flying a racetrack pattern. And as long as you know everybody's separated and safe, you don't need a pilot sitting there. Now you need somebody that's really just looking at the data with some artificial intelligence that says, you know, these ships, we looked at them, they're, they say they're a cargo vessel, the ISAR says they're the right length, we don't need to worry about it, and it moves on and it does all that machine learning and, and, and um, uh, AI to, you know, pare down hundreds to tens. And now the operator only has to look at 10 things instead of 100. And, you know, things like ships doing zigzags, you know, they shouldn't do that. Or two ships side by side out in the middle of the ocean, what are they doing? You know, these types of things. And um, you you guys have been trying to figure out how many uh, aircraft can be controlled from a single console. Where are you in terms of that? um, You know, how many airplanes are you controlling from a single console at this point, or or can control from a single console? We've been working on multi-aircraft control for quite some time now, and um, again, it depends on the mission. I think in, uh, like in CENTCOM, where you're, a big part of your time is transit, you know, you don't need a pilot and sensor operator sitting there the whole time. So I think some multi-aircraft control would even, and CENTCOM would do a lot of good. But when you're doing a mission where your job is to fly a pattern and the airplane is just a vacuum cleaner, you know, you really don't need to, you know, care about that. You really, the sensors just did drag the airplane around at that point. So that's, that's the goal is uh, stay safe, Get in, you know, you, you, obviously you got to have airspace integration. You got to talk to the tower. You got to, you know, take off and land. But once you're out and you, once you're in your area of interest, get it into multi-aircraft control. So that's the other big area that we're working on, and it's and it's a common operating picture using um, our new acquisition, CCRI, um, that builds this product called Optics or Thresher, if you've heard of that. And um, we think all that's going to come together and be, you know, a game changer for maritime patrol. And there are going to be a lot of folks who are going to ask, um, what kind of effectors can you put on this, right? Because obviously the sensor part of it is important. Uh, obviously the P-8 can come there and drop torpedoes, but you guys also can put weapons on, on yeah. the airplane. Like again, and we can complement the P-8. You know, we could drop torpedoes, or they drop them and we drop sauna buoys. We stay on station to keep eyes, you know, custody of the target. and. Um, so the whole, you know, manned, unmanned teaming, I think is just going to be part of this game-changing maritime patrol piece that's going to be our new frontier as we move. We're not moving out of CINCOM. They still need us there, um, but they also need us in other areas for, uh, you know, these new missions that are very important in the Pacific. And, and uh, last question on, on CENTCOM, right? I mean, there there is this sense that we're wrapping up the mission. We're not going to be in Afghanistan. We're not going to be in Iraq. But actually, we're going to be in both of those places uh, for a protracted period. What what sort of presence are we going to have? And does that actually give you that core, core foundational business, right? Because there was this concern that there's going to be a dramatic drawdown. There has been a drawdown, certainly, in the New York crap. But what does the business look like going forward for you in terms of supporting the kind of missions you guys have already been doing for, for 20 years this year? Longer, actually. Yeah. So the demand is still there, and we're still flying. And um, I, I would say the only thing I've seen is it's leveled off. It's just, you know, we've for years and years, we grew, I think on average, over 19 years, about 18% growth a year. Um, so now it's leveling off in this area. And, you know, we're dovetailing right behind it, this whole new maritime piece. And then right behind that, 
whole nother topic, airborne early warning, uh, will be our next frontier behind that. And now a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. At Navy League, we also met with John Miller and Ed Thaxton of Leonardo DRS's Naval Power Systems business, where Miller is the Senior Vice President and General Manager, and Thaxton is the Chief Technology Officer. Here's our conversation. And joining us now are Ed Thaxton, the Chief Technology Officer and Vice President for Business Development at DRS Naval Power Systems, and John Miller, also of the same business. He's the Senior Vice President and General Manager uh, for Naval Power Systems. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much for making time here at this uh, Navy League. It's good to see everybody in person. Uh, John, let me start with you. Um, the Navy has been talking about electrification of ships for a very long time, for decades, in fact, uh, to try to take, to go to an all-electric ship format. You have a lot more flexibility on the power plant for new weapons, for radars and sensors, and we're basically tapped out on power on most of our ships now, uh, as it is before we bring on high-energy lasers. Uh, the railgun program has uh, appears to have uh, bit the dust, but we'll see on that. Talk to us a little bit about where the Navy's head is on this, uh, because despite talking about it, we're still a little ways away from getting to that integrated power future. Well, we see some acknowledgement of the of the demand in the specifications for DDGX that exists right now, uh, planning for all electric propulsion plant. Uh, we see movement in the past, kind of edging that way, uh, going to 4160 on DDGs and, and 13.8 carriers to increase the power uh, capabilities. But as more weapons come on, uh, it's basically, they're gonna be limited to new platforms at the moment, uh, unless there's something done on some of the existing hulls. Uh, to, so to put a laser weapon on an existing hull is gonna be much more challenging on a new class of ship. And uh, especially as we start climbing up on the on the power curve on that. And talk to, us, uh, talk to us about the state of the technological art on this, right? I mean, the Navy tends to be conservative about anything that deals with the drive line of a ship as well as on electrics, hydraulics, or, and, and pneumatics are tried and tested even though they're the bane of every single uh, sailor's uh, existence and electrification would solve that challenge. Talk to us a little bit about what the state of the technological art is and how quickly we can electrify the fleet as long as the Navy makes a decision to do so. Yeah, electrifying the fleet going forward is really not a technology challenge, it's an engineering challenge. The technology for electric propulsion has been around for decades in cruise ships and other uh, non-military ships, uh, but militarizing those is a little bit of a challenge. And the people who supply the equipment for commercial ships don't support the Navy's needs. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a transition that's needed from that basic technology, but it's not anything that's fundamental technology, it's just engineering. Uh, and the Navy's uh, ready to do it. And, and talk to us about some of the clear advantages. I mean, if I go to the 1920s, uh, we had aircraft carriers and battleships that were powered by uh, electric motors, right? I mean, Lexington was an electric ship, and yep. as I recall, at least one or two classes of that. Tennessee, I think I want to say, it was an electric ship. Yep. yep, that's right. I forgot the actual ship. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do research, and I will accept mail from our audience on, on this. But talk to us about some of the clear advantages to doing that, and what are... Uh, what is a way to ramp them on? And, and John, I want to get your thoughts 
thoughts on this uh, as well as you work with the Navy customer on how to do it. But talk to us about how you start to put this technology out to the fleet because it is game changing in almost every way. Well, the, the main advantages for electric drive are the ability to operate the engines of the ship, which you will still have in a more efficient manner. So with mechanical drive like your car, you can only operate the engine at a speed that's proportional to the wheels of your car. Uh, with electric drive, you can operate it at whatever speed is most efficient or the number of engines, ships have more than one, that are most efficient. You can't do that with a mechanical drive. Uh, the other major advantage of electric drive is that you have a significant more amount of electric power. Uh, this is the reason cruise ships went to electric drive decades ago, two decades ago, because they had huge hotel loads, air conditioning and so on. Uh, now the Navy's faced with exactly the same problem and that advantage exists for electric drive as well. You have additional power to support lasers and radars and rail guns potentially if they are ever uh, succeed technically and uh, and so on, all these payloads. So, John, where is the Navy on this, right? Um, there's a new administration coming on. Carlos Del Toro is going to be the next Secretary of the United States Navy. Um, there is a sense that the Navy's got to innovate. As we said, electric power, you can better match. You can have four or five different primary uh, generators on a ship. You can time in. That helps you on a damage control standpoint as well because uh, you don't necessarily need the drive line to be uh, contiguous and go through a gigantic gearbox that also uh, makes noise but also takes up uh, a lot of power. What are some of the conversations you're having about sort of what's next and, and how this new administration may decide to move on this? Well, I think the short of it is they're recognizing that the needs on the ship at any moment in time exceed the ability to produce um, to, to produce power to meet the demand. So they're faced with how to optimally transition power for different applications on the ship, how to store it on the ship. So they recognize the challenges in front of them. Um, but again, and they're looking at new ship classes like DDGX, um, what we're doing on Columbia, they're looking at SSNX, future submarine, uh, for these technologies. I think the real challenge is, what do they do with the existing ship classes? They're gonna be at sea for a lot of years. They're gonna have these same demands brought on board the ships. Um, and it's not necessarily practical to rip everything else that's on the ship and replace with a full electric uh, propulsion system. So, uh, you know, what are they getting about transitioning those hulls going forward? And I really haven't heard much um, much conversation around a solution to that problem. That's that's a little a little more near term looking for the you know 300 ship fleet that's out there. Yeah, so the uh, electric drive appeals to a variety of people. I mean, it, it, it reduces the amount of fuel that's consumed, which reduces the amount of CO2 that's produced. It reduces the number of ships that are needed to support ships that are forward deployed with fuel. So uh, they require fuel of their own as well. So electric drive supports that whole entire environmental need, as well as providing for additional payloads, weapons, radars, lasers, and all the other payloads the Navy is trying to put on these ships. So electric drive appeals to all kinds. One of the things that's great about the United States Navy is the consistency and building on, you know, it's, as, as John, as you mentioned, right, I mean, you, you're not going to get rid of the propulsion plants uh, on existing ships. It's going to be something that's going going forward. Ed, what are some of the lessons from Columbia, for example, that then you can fold into the surface fleet, that then you can fold uh, in turn into SSNX and, and whatever else comes down the road? 
Well, again, it's uh, it's it's not basic tech, not fundamental technology. It's leveraging existing technology in a manner that suits the needs of the application. So, on Columbia, we use basic conventional technology for all of the equipment, uh, but it's used in a manner that meets the needs of a submarine. And same equipment can be used to meet the needs of a surface ship, much less expensively, because the needs of a surface ship are different than the needs of a submarine. You also don't have an easygoing naval reactors to deal with. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I can. Yeah, shout out to Admiral Caldwell. Thanks very much for listening, sir, and nobody is busting on NR. You guys just have the most exacting standards on the planet. <laughs> right. Um, so the, sur the surface ship community can readily leverage uh, the Columbia system. The origins of the system that's in Columbia was a system that was suitable for sur surface ships and submarines as a common electric drive system. Uh, and so the ability to leverage that as opposed to starting over with a new system just for surface ships would be the loss of lessons in itself. Um, let me let me ask you one uh, you know technological hurdle question, right? I mean, the Royal Navy's Type 45 destroyers are among the best ships uh, on the planet. They're electric drive ships and a lot of uh, electrification on the plant, a lot of flexibility, but they've also had problems uh, with the giant motors uh, that they have on those uh, ships. HMS Defender uh, is accompanying the Queen Elizabeth Battle Group, and she had a, a challenge and is being retrofitted, ha has already, I think, been retrofitted uh, with uh, the, technology, uh, the update uh, to uh, address some of its challenges. How do you address the question that some people in the Navy will say, ah, look, there's an electric drive ship and, and she's got some some challenges. You know, what's what's the counterpoint to that from your standpoint? It, it's interesting. You can almost point your finger to the reasons for them. And some of those same challenges existed on previous U.S. Navy platforms. Uh, but the Type 45 uses an induction machine. If you look at what commercial people are using on cruise ships, there are exactly zero induction machines that are used there. They're all synchronous motors. They also use simpler drive technology that's different than that sort of developmental drive. So this is an area where they made technical selections of pieces of equipment that were that departed from the commercial industrial base and they took on risk. And it's not necessary to do that. You can leverage the things that are already being used and put them into a military platform. And that's what we've done on the applications we're moving forward with. And uh, uh, last question, what are some of the differences, right? I mean, you're taking a commercial proven technology. What are What is the secret elements, secret sauce elements you're putting to this to militarize it, to get the benefits of commercial while also uh, driving it to sort of Navy standards and requirements? So we do use a different type of electric motor, and our motors are permanent magnet motors, which are smaller and more efficient. They might be slightly more expensive, but for the Navy application, that's not a problem. And that makes the machines roughly a half or one-third the size. So we ruggedize them, but make the thicker metal, larger bearing clearances. I mean, for example, the clearance in an induction motor is like three millimeters. In between the rotor and the stator in our motors, it's more like a half an inch. And that allows things to move, and they don't impact during shock. It makes them more rugged. Same with the drive equipment, thick cabinets and so on. The electrical schematic form are roughly the same, but the structure that they're in and the cooling is different to meet a Navy application. John, anything you want to add before we part? No, I would just emphasize part of what Ed shared, which is really it's about using today's technology to increase the power density on the ship, use some of the storage technology that exists today uh, to accommodate the bearing loads. And with a full electric ship, you have the you have the capability of supporting any and all needs and transitioning from one operation phase to the, to the next on the ship. So it's really it's really about not solving new physics problems, but application engineering for things that we have today. 
guys, thanks very much. Uh, break a leg on it and look forward to finally uh, seeing what the roadmap for this uh, is uh, for the U.S. Navy. Thanks very much. Hey, thank you. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs>